When I was in college, we were in a class preparing for a calculus exam, and one of the students in the class asked our professor if he was going to give us partial credit for this exam. And his response was classic. It is still etched in my mind these 18 or 20 years later. And he said, if I were a judge, I would say, irrelevant. And he went on to explain that it was our job to know the material and to leave the grading to him. It wasn't, wasn't our place to know how he would grade. It was irrelevant even to ask. And there are some questions that are like that, not even worth the breath that we expend in order to ask them. And as we look to our text this morning in Titus chapter 3, we see that Paul is warning Titus of this very thing in the life of the church. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 3, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, in what had come earlier in this chapter, Paul had laid out the gospel quite clearly, and he had said that he wanted Titus to proclaim this gospel confidently so that those who had believed God would devote themselves to good works. And we talked about that last week, this relationship between the gospel and good works. But what we didn't speak much of that's there in verse 8 is Paul's statement at the end of the verse that these things are good and profitable for men. In other words, there's a good reason to keep the focus on the gospel and on the good works that flow from the gospel. Reason being, these things are good, these things are profitable for men. And so Paul's concern here is that Titus will keep his focus on what matters, the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, the love and kindness of God, how we were saved by his mercy alone through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. These things are good and profitable for men. This is a message that matters. It's important for Titus to stay focused on this. This is the doctrine of salvation that brings life and forgiveness to those who are lost and dead in their sins. This doctrine leads to good works which glorify God and bear witness to non-believers and edify our fellow Christians and give us an assurance of our salvation. Of course, these things are good and profitable for men. And so this is where Titus is supposed to put his time and his energy. This gospel is what he's supposed to speak about confidently. And seeing that he's to put his energy there in the proclamation of this good and profitable doctrine That, by definition, will mean that there are some things to be avoided because not all things are profitable. Not all things are edifying. And thus it is that Paul now warns Titus of those things which he ought to avoid and also, therefore, the kind of people that he is to reject. And so as we consider these three verses this morning, we will do so under two main headings. First, avoid unprofitable teachings. Secondly, reject heretical men. Avoid unprofitable teachings. Secondly, reject heretical men. And so first of all, he says, avoid unprofitable teachings. This is what we find in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now we need to 
pay special attention to what he says here. Controversy is certainly not desirable as an end in itself. As believers in Christ, we are called to peace. But he doesn't simply say avoid controversy. Sometimes when the truth is assaulted, we have to contend for it. Sometimes controversy in the life of faith is unavoidable. So Paul contended for the truth in Acts 15 when the gospel came under attack by the Judaizers. Paul and Barnabas, we're told, had great dissension with those who were trying to add human works to the gospel. Similarly, Jude tells us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. And so the command here in verse 9 is not a command to eschew all controversy as such. Sometimes faithfulness requires controversy. What he forbids here, though, is foolish controversy. And the King James helpfully translated this as foolish questions. The teachers at school, at least where I went, used to say that there's no such thing as a dumb question. Now, whether or not that is altogether true, what we can certainly say is that there is such a thing as a foolish question. Not all questions are profitable. Not all questions are wise. Not all questions are edifying to pursue. So this is not a call for anti-intellectualism or call for a faith which is unthinking. We need to understand and defend our faith. Be ready, as Peter says, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope which lies within us. But we need to acknowledge our limits. There are limits to our understanding. There are limits to what God has revealed. Think Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. God has given us his word, and so let us labor to understand it. Let us labor in it. But let us not be drawn away from the purpose for which God has given the scriptures to us. Scriptures are not given to us to satisfy our curiosity in every regard. The scriptures are given to us to convict us of sin, to point us to Christ for salvation, to teach us how to live in this world for the glory of God, for the good of others, and ultimately for the good of ourselves. The scriptures are able to give us the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus, as we find in 2 Timothy 3.15. The scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. We can pursue profitable questions, but not foolish ones. And Paul also warned Titus not to be on guard against genealogies. Now, obviously, there's, there's nothing wrong with getting on to Ancestry.com and trying to learn about your ancestors, but the problem here in Titus's context and in Timothy's context as well, as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 1, is that there seemed to be a, an element among the, the Jewish people of that time who placed a great deal of emphasis on their genealogies and thought wrongly that there was some kind of religious significance to their genealogy. The exile and dispersions of the Jews had complicated the genealogical task, and in some circles there was apparently this great desire to search out one's ancestry. The uh, Jewish scholar of the Middle Ages, Maimonides, gives us a hint that, that some Jews thought that when the Messiah came, all of the genealogies would be, would be straightened out. And so Maimonides said, In the days of King Messiah, when his kingdom shall be settled and all Israel shall be gathered to him, they shall all of them be genealogized according to his word by the Holy Ghost. As it is said in Malachi 3.3, 3, He shall purify the sons of Levi and say, This is a genealogized priest and this is a genealogized Levite and shall drive away 
those who are not genealogized to Israel. The idea was that there was in their ancestry something of spiritual significance. This was a myth. Your genealogy is of no necessary spiritual significance. Certainly it's a great benefit and blessing to have believers as your parents and to have been taught the gospel at a young age. But with that said, it is infinitely better to be one who is a Christian, though descended from a long line of ungodly and wicked people, than to have a godly heritage and be raised in a godly and Christian home and turn your back on it. Your genealogy may be interesting, but it's not spiritually determinative. The only two groupings in humanity that count are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. All of us were naturally born in Adam. The gospel tells us that we must be born again in Christ. The genealogy that matters is whether you have the devil for your father or whether you have God for your father. And Paul also warns Titus about strife. He's not to get caught up in these quarrels and controversies. We can think back to his words to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. And the fourth thing that Paul warns here in verse 9 is about avoiding disputes about the law. The Jews of old disputed much about the law and its meaning and application. Rabbi was set against rabbi, school of thought against school of thought. And Paul tells Titus not to go there. He says that these disputes are unprofitable and worthless. As we saw in our unison reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul had contrasted the true Christian instruction with these unprofitable and worthless teachings by saying that the goal of Christian instruction is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is, this is where we're going as Christians in Christian instruction. But, he says, some men have strayed from these things and turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law. The problem was these men didn't even know what they were saying. They'd gone away from true Christian instruction and the goal of the Christian faith. And it seems that Paul here is warning Titus about getting mixed up in these kinds of disputes about the law. And while we may not know all of the exact and precise contours of these debates, whatever these debates about the law were, they weren't healthy, they weren't edifying. Paul says, avoid them. Now, in warning Titus about these four things here, the foolish controversies, the genealogies, the strife, and the disputes about the law, Paul is concerned that Titus keep the main thing the main thing. He's supposed to speak confidently about the truths of the gospel because these things are good and profitable for men. But he's supposed to avoid these things mentioned here because these things are unprofitable and useless. You can see the contrast. Good and profitable, worthless and unprofitable. Now, in our day, there may not be so many disputes about the law or such an emphasis on genealogies, at least in the way that these people here were emphasizing genealogies. I suppose the rise of critical race theory may perhaps place an emphasis on uh, genealogy. That would be a different application, certainly, than what these people were going, against, going about here. But despite the difference, this is still unprofitable. And there are other foolish controversies to avoid in our day. There's strife to avoid. There are unprofitable and worthless teachings, unprofitable and worthless ideas, unprofitable and worthless ideologies to stay away from as Christians. And how, do we, how can we recognize these things? Martin Lloyd-Jones once pointed out that the way false teaching often works is that it, quote, always emphasizes some one thing in particular and gives great prominence to it. Whatever it may be, 
It is the one thing that has led to the special teaching. This is the one thing, is the mainspring of the entire movement. They allow that you're a true believer, but in addition you must have this one thing. This one thing is essential. That is the big thing. It is always in a prominent position at the center. And you are more conscious of that one thing than you are of Christ because of the emphasis on that. I don't know that I would say that that's always the way that false teaching works, but it often does. Often false teaching singles out some one particular issue and focuses on that to such an extent that the entire focus is diverted away from the Christian message, the heart of the Christian message. It's diverted away from Christ and the gospel. In this way, the minutia becomes the main thing. And the main thing, as it were, is kicked out of the, back, out of the front seat into the back seat. The things that are good and profitable, the gospel of Christ and the true good works that follow in the lives of those who believe are made secondary to some trivial and ultimately worthless thing. That's the way this kind of thing often goes down. Sometimes it's one thing that's emphasized, as in the case of circumcision, think of the book of Galatians. Sometimes there may be more than one thing, kind of a conglomeration or constellation of things that are all kind of put together and packaged together, as seems to have been the case going on in the church at Colossae. So we find in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16, Paul says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on the visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God." That was what was going on there. These people were emphasizing these minutia, these small and insignificant things. These, uh, they were placing this undue emphasis on the Sabbath day, probably bringing the full rigor of the Old Testament law to bear. They were emphasizing these, these festivals and these various things. Paul says all of these things were shadows, which were pointing to the main thing, who is Christ. They were grabbing onto the shadows and all the while lessening their grip on the substance, on Christ himself. It was a drift from the good and profitable to the unprofitable and the worthless. This is what you could call mission drift. So whether it be one thing or a combination of several things, whenever they become the main thing, rather than Christ and him crucified for sinners, we can know that something is wrong. Now certainly in the whole scope of Christian preaching and teaching, there are many things which obviously need to be addressed. Making disciples of Jesus means teaching them to observe all things that he has commanded us. So the word of God deals with us in all of life. To be faithful, we have to say more simply than that Jesus died for sinners and rose again, repent and believe. We understand that the message needs to be fleshed out. We understand that all of scripture is God-breathed and profitable and ought to be taught and explained. We understand this, but... When the good news of Christ and his gospel is not the the point of the spear, so to speak, when Christ and his gospel are not the hub and the center of our message from which everything else radiates, then that's how we can tell that someone or some church has drifted aside into the unprofitable and the worthless. I recently listened to a message that was given by a pastor uh, who comes from a historically conservative and evangelical denomination, and he said that, that he had 
heard from someone in his denomination who attended a church that wasn't his, but someone else from his denomination who said that they hadn't heard the gospel preached in their church for six months. That's a problem, right? You can tell that something is astray when the gospel hasn't been preached in church for six months. The old saying is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He commanded Titus to stay on the solid ground of the gospel and avoid these ephemeral arguments that lack substance. And so it must be with us. The marching orders of the church are clear. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. How do we do that? We do it in the words of verse 8 by speaking confidently about these things, this glorious gospel that was summarized up in verses 4 through 7, so that those who have believed God will be careful to devote themselves to good work. And negatively, this means that we avoid these things that are unprofitable and worthless. And that brings us then to our second point for this morning, which is reject the heretical man. Now, in verse 10, Paul shifts this emphasis from a thing to be avoided, these unprofitable teachings, to the kind of persons to avoid. And so Paul says, reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now, the word used in the original is the word from which we get our word heretic. And indeed, the King James Version translated it by saying, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Now, most often when we use the word heretic, we use it to refer to someone who either rejects some fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith or who embraces a doctrine which is inconsistent with the fundamentals of Christianity. The fundamental doctrines would be those uh, concerning the, the Trinity, the deity, and the humanity of Christ, the way of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the virgin birth, and so on. And so when errors are embraced that undercut that foundation, we often refer to that as, as heresy and one who does so as a heretic. But in its original sense, this word heretic, and as used here, referred to someone who was out to make a sect or a party for themselves, out to, to be divisive. And so they, uh, they divert themselves away from the, the church's teaching, and they're out to make their own clique, their own group. And often, again, this would take place by rejecting the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of the church. And here in the context of Titus chapter 3, it appears that in verse 10, Paul is referring to someone who would actually do what is forbidden in verse 9. Someone who would be promulgating these foolish controversies and teaching about genealogies, stirring up strife, bringing in disputes about the law, and so on. And in doing so, opposing the truth of the gospel. The kind of person that Paul is warning about here is those who follow after unprofitable and worthless things, as opposed to those things which are truly good and profitable. In doing so, they break up the unity of the church, they seek to separate themselves from the body of the church and from the unity of the faith, and they seek to draw away others with them. This is the heretic or the factious man of whom Paul is speaking here. This is someone who rejects or at least largely sets aside the fundamental emphases of the gospel, sets out to make a new group, a new party, 
thus attempting and perhaps succeeding in bringing division and faction and schism to the church, breaking away from the household of God, the household of God which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. This is trouble. Paul warned the Romans, Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. He said, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That's what's going on here. And this is what Paul is warning about. And notice here in the text of Titus 3 that there's a certain willfulness and stubbornness about this. Paul says, reject him after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. In other words, this is, this is not accidental, at least in the kind of case that Paul is des- describing here. Paul is talking about someone who had turned aside from the apostolic message and who had been warned about it and refused to correct, refused to turn around and stop after the warning had been given. He did not change his opinion. Instead, he persisted in that opinion. As one writer expressed it, he chooses for himself what the church, by choosing scripture, must repudiate and disown. Augustine had said that it is altogether impossible, or at any rate most difficult, to define heresy. And he went on to say that the spirit in which the error was held, rather than the error itself, constituted the heresy. There's this spirit of setting oneself apart, making a division, and doing so intentionally, recognizing that they are charting a course which is different from the course upon which the Church of Christ has been on to this point. This doesn't mean that that they know that they are in the wrong. Quite the contrary, they think that they are right. But certainly after they've been warned by the church and continue to persist in their ways, they know that the path that they are on is one that sets them outside of the church and outside of the doctrine professed by the church. Proverbs 18.1 warns us about such a man. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. So Paul says here that this kind of man is to be rejected after a first and second warning. The case here in vision seems to, uh, to differ somewhat slightly from that which was in the view of our Lord in Matthew chapter 18. But nevertheless, the same general principles apply. Matthew 18 is not honed in on the issue of false teachers and dividers of the church per se. Matthew 18, Jesus lays out how we should seek to restore those who have sinned. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. If he refuses, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Here in Titus 3, we have a particular type of sin that's being dealt with, the sin of being divisive in the church. Someone is trying to do, in the words of Acts chapter 20, verse 30, trying to speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And inasmuch as this command is given to Titus, and inasmuch as the offense that is here committed is directed against the church at large, the first and second warnings which Paul appears to have in mind would likely be warnings that are coming from Titus in his office as an overseer, 
and therefore, by extension, some other uh, overseers within the church. And so these seem to be pastoral warnings and not simply brotherly admonitions that are being given and, and spoken of here. Paul says if, after these two warnings, such a factious person refuses to repent, he's to be rejected, which implies excommunication, being officially removed from the fellowship of the church as an act of church discipline. Paul says that such a person is perverted, which is to say they are, they are turned aside, or possibly could be translated as turned himself aside. He has turned aside from the faith, once for all entrusted to the saints. He's turned aside and rejected the admonition of the church, which as we find in 1 Timothy three fifteen, is the pillar and support of the truth. Such a person is sinning and is sinning grievously. And thus it is that Paul can refer to such a one as self-condemned. This kind of person is persistently holding on to errant teachings. He is speaking wicked things and trying to wreck the peace and unity of the church by drawing people away so that they will follow him. He's been warned twice and yet still continues on in his course. These kind of people have condemned themselves by their stubbornness. Now, from Paul's instruction here that we've, we've seen in verses 9 through 11, we can, we can learn a couple of things. We learn about God's great concern for his church and his design for his church. And we also learn that we have to pay close attention to the gospel and continue paying close attention to the gospel. And so notice here the concern of God for the peace and unity of the church. I once heard a pastor say some years ago, the peace and unity of the church is worth a lot more than we think it is. And I think he's right. But we might add peace and unity in the truth because unity in error is wicked and worthless. But God is concerned for his church. Unity in the truth is essential. And so it was that in the context of the church quarrels in Corinth, those quarrels in which one would say, I am of Paul, another would say, I am of of Apollos, someone else would say, I am of Cephas, that Paul admonished them quite frankly in 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. He said, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's not speaking of the individual Christian as a temple or of the physical body as a temple, though it is. You can see 1 Corinthians 6.19 for that truth. But here in 1 Corinthians 3, the emphasis is on the collective body of believers. The you is in the plural. You all are the temple of God collectively together. And Paul says if anyone destroys that temple, if anyone destroys the church, the body of believers, God will destroy him. In other words, this is, this is no joke. It's a serious thing to wreck the unity of the church. We read about that unity in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The way this body is to function is described later on in that same chapter, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, that speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head of the church, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted together by what every joint supplies, acts according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The individual parts of the body are to work together 
and the body is held together by what each joint supplies. And thus working together, the body of Christ is built up in love and grows up into Christ who is our head. But on the contrary, this factious man or heretic arises and he wants to cut off a part of the body and place himself as the leader of it. He's attempting an amputation. Now what happens when a limb is amputated from a body? It has no life in it. And so it will be with those who follow destructive heresies. Their departure from the church so shows that they have no life in themselves. It's a terrible thing to form a sect or to take a, a group and set yourself at the head of it apart from the teaching of the church and apart from the authority of the church. The Lord's instruction to Paul here is that such a one should be rejected. The person who's trying to attempt this kind of wrecking of the unity of the church and introduce this false teaching, such a one is to be rejected because they cut off people from the words of life and the truth of Christ. They cut people off from the truth of the gospel. In doing so, they destroy souls. They have to be dealt with firmly. And we should observe here how Paul's instruction cuts against the radical individualism of our own culture, also the anti-authoritarian tendencies of our culture. The spirit of our age encourages diversity of thought as a virtue. I suppose there are times when diversity of thought may be a virtue, but not when it comes to the gospel. Likewise, the spirit of our age tends to have an anti-institutional bias and a bias against authority. The spirit of our age would say to this faction man, follow your own truth. To thine own self be true. It doesn't matter that orthodox and faithful Christians have held these doctrines for 2,000 years. Feel free to reject them. Chart your own course. Innovation is good. But Paul says, as we find in 1 Timothy 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. How's that for toleration of a variety of viewpoints in regard to the gospel? If you advocate a different doctrine that is in contradiction of the sound words of Christ, that's wonderful. We welcome diversity. No. The apostle says, you conceded and you understand nothing. Nothing. If you advocate a doctrine that is contrary to the words of Christ. And similarly, we find in the New Testament that far from superfluous, our connection with the church is vital for our lives as Christians. Again, the church is the support and pillar of the truth. Going back to Ephesians 4, it is in the church where saints are built up and equipped for works of service by pastors and teachers until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we're no longer children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. That's what Paul's warning about right here is the trickery of men and the craftiness and deceitful scheming. So it is in the church that we're built up in Christ by the ministry of his word. This is the place where we exhort one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is the place where we stir one another up to love and good deeds. Or at least it ought to be. We ought to be doing that when we gather here. It's my hope that the preaching and reading of scripture and the singing of psalms and hymns stirs you up to love and good deeds. And our conversation with one another before and after the service ought to be doing the same. I realize that every conversation will be different and every relationship is going to be different. But nevertheless, for those of us who are members here, we've covenanted together to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. 
This affectionate care and watchfulness is not only the job of the elders, it's the job of all of our members. Christ has chosen to use his church as the vehicle of salvation here in this world. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her on the cross so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but rather that she be holy and blameless. He said that he would build his church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The church is important to Jesus. This is why it is so wicked to cause division in the church. This is why it is so wicked to turn aside from the gospel and begin paying attention to myths. Woe to the one who would interfere with the growth of the church up into her head. Woe to the one who would introduce a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Woe to the one who would turn aside to foolish questions that our Lord would judge to be irrelevant. If anyone destroys the church of God, God will destroy him. Brothers and sisters, this call to avoid what is false and futile, this call to avoid those who would seek to divide the followers of Christ, is also, I would add, a call to recognize and embrace afresh the glorious gospel that we profess. That we've been redeemed from our sins. We've been redeemed from a worthless way of life by the blood of Christ. The kindness of God and his love for mankind have appeared in Christ. He saved us by his mercy and not by our works. We've been justified and made heirs of eternal life. And while we turn away from that which is unprofitable and worthless, we must embrace with ever greater confidence and ever greater affection that which is good and profitable for men. By his gospel and his word, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. In Christ, we have all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why would we turn aside from such glorious good news as that? Why would we turn our backs on such a gracious and powerful Savior? Rather, as we find in Hebrews chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We won't escape if we neglect it. So let's pay close attention to it so that we don't drift away from it. May Christ our Lord hold us fast. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that we would... Keep the main thing the main thing. Lord, that we would not turn aside to foolish teachings or foolish questions, but rather, Lord, that we would focus on that which is clear, that which you have told us, that by which you have saved us. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to grant to us the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, we love that, we cherish it, pray that this would continue in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.